I'm going to be honest with you guys. I, I actually had, I, I was vacillating whether or not I should even talk about what I'm planning on talking about tonight. Um, because I think it's intense, and I think it might be a little disturbing. Uh, but I uh, decided ultimately that you guys are adults, and you guys could hear what I have to say on this issue. And the question is really, um, the way to start, I think, is, is we have, you know, we talked about faith, and we talked endlessly about the different kinds of faith, nine different kinds of faith we came up with, and purpose, and meaning, and God, and all that, and Muna. And we have so many of our brethren who don't believe. And maybe if you were to ask them, do you believe? And you'll say, they might say yes, they, they're not atheists, of course. But do they really believe? Do they have the emuna like we talked about? Does it impact their behavior? A lot of people, it doesn't. A lot of people don't change their behavior because of God. So the question I want to ask today is, why is it, or how is it possible that our nation has so many people that don't believe? What went wrong? And I, I think we can even backtrack this question, backdate this question uh, throughout Jewish history. You know, we find in biblical times, Jews who had a much more heightened sense of spirituality than we do, yet we find them committing idolatry. And idolatry is the absolute rejection of God in the most, in the most uh, uh, cruel and brutal fashion. You know, this, that, that's it. it means it's, 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 it's pledging your allegiance to a deity that's not God, to a pagan, bowing down to statues. And that wasn't common. You know, it, it, it was out of the ordinary, but it existed. Now the question is, how is that, how is that possible? What went wrong? What about someone compels them to reject God? And I think we could ask the question, uh, like we said, uh, back, you know, backdate the question. But I think even today, uh, in the okay, well, let's see what those forces are. But uh, you know, let me let me give you an example here. The Talmud calls the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim, which means like the word emunah, people of faith descendants of people of faith. It's, faith is in our bones. It's in our DNA. Right? It, 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 it's who we are. We, we are people, a people of faith. Yet we see today that many of our you know, co-religiousness, whatever, how you pronounce that word, co-religionists, co-religionists, uh, don't have that faith. What went wrong? So I want to just uh, ask a question here. Let's, uh, let's, let's ask this question. The people that don't have faith, People say, I don't believe in God. Are they motivated? What's motivating that stance? Is it pursuit of truth or is it something else? The people in the world that they declare or they determine or they decide or they just believe that there is no God. Well, some people are atheists. Okay. Some people have possibly bad results on that's a good example. So someone had a bad experience. Does that prove that God doesn't exist? Doesn't. No, it doesn't really prove it. I'm saying logically it doesn't prove it. A lot doesn't prove that God does exist. True. I would agree that experiences don't, aren't necessarily, unless this experience is prophecy. Right? But, you know, if someone has a bad experience with a religious Jew, that doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. That pro- right? You have a religious Jew who says, I believe in God, and then he swindles someone else, else in business. That say, oh, look at these Jews, you know. But that doesn't prove anything, right? It proves that person. That proves a bad, bad person. That person that, and that, what does that even prove? That, prove? that proves that someone who doesn't follow the Torah and masquerades as someone who does, right? How dangerous and damaging is that for Torah? Because when people say, oh, look the way the Jews behave, and then they link the behavior that's associated with the Torah with the guy who's not behaving with the Torah, how much more damage does that cost? But the fact that someone has a bad experience doesn't really prove it. It's not logic, right? Pursuit of truth in a logical manner does not mean that no, no experience, no behavior would necessarily uh, disregard any sort of belief, correct? So what's motivating them? What is motivating people? I mean, what, what is guiding them? Is it pursuit of truth? Uh, maybe. Yeah, or, or, or why do people, ha- what process do people undertake to arrive at their conclusion? And I would, I would, by the way, I would lean to that also, not just people that 
believe, that don't believe in God, but even people who believe in God. What? Well, but experiences is not okay. How about upbringing? Upbringing. Up, upbringing. That's very powerful. But what does upbringing tell us? Upbringing means is that they haven't really made a decision. They're just going with the default. They were indoctrinated with a certain position, and then they just never changed. So they never determined anything. But the Jews that, let's say, decided in antiquity to reject God or reject Torah, what was motivating them? So we find in the Talmud something very interesting. Okay, listen to what the Talmud says here. This is the Talmud. It talks about idolatry in Sanhedrin in the 60s. It says like this. The Jews always knew that there was no substance in idolatry. Now, the idolatry to us is, is the most irrational thing a person could do. You see a little idol on the side, you say, bow down to that. Someone sent me pictures. From, they, went to, um, they went to the Far East, and they were in a Buddha temple, which, by the way, they shouldn't walk in there, because that's a house of idolatry. But they really see people praying, bowing down, to little figurines. It's it's so crazy. In India, it's the cow. It's, it's the cow, but, you know, know but they, my dad would tell me when he went to India, he sees in, in office buildings, every, there's these little elephants. These, right. oh, yeah, yeah. And to us, that doesn't make any sense. What, how can we accord power to something that you've made yourself in a factory? It doesn't make any sense. I, I had a Hindu explain to me that they believe in saying, God, we're doing all these other things just to represent representations of other <coughs> different aspects of God, but that they just believe in the Lord Okay, God. so that's actually, it's interesting, that parallels what, how Maimonides describes the development of idolatry. Idolatry didn't start off as people starting to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, or any other forces. Rather, they said, oh, the Almighty wants us to give honor yeah. to the wonderful creations that He made. So He made the sun, and it's so powerful and so wonderful. Let's also honor the Almighty by honoring the Son. And eventually, after several, several generations, people forgot to take that last step. Dave? We can see the Son. We can see the moon. We can't see, we can see God. the trees. We can't see God. Okay, so that makes it harder for us to believe in God. But, but the initial mistake was not that they abandoned God. Rather, they just accorded uh, honor because they made the calcul- miscalculation. They wanted something too visual. Yes, exactly. They wanted a visualization. They wanted an easier job. Easier. Yes. So the Thomas is like this. Go ahead. It's some sort of incarnation, right? In some God incarnate. That's right. The Thomas says something else. Listen to this, guys. Thomas says that the Jews always knew that there was no substance in the, in the idolatry. It wasn't real. So why did they worship it? They only worshipped it because that allowed them to be frivolous with sexual sins. Really? That's what the Talmud says. You don't get that. Okay. So what does that mean? This is the adult comment we're going to get. Yeah, well. This is the adult. So what it means is like this. If you believe in the Jewish God, you believe in the Torah, that is very demanding on your behavior. Because, okay, you're bound. You can't eat this, you can't do that, you can't sleep with this or with that or with the other, right? They really, their ultimate goal was the illicit sexual relations. That's what they really wanted. It's just, to them, it was a, it was a contradiction. You can't believe in God and in Torah and behave in a way that's entirely, you know, that, you know, that's entirely opposite to that. It's entirely immoral, that's right. Entirely, you know, antithetical to God and Torah. So therefore, they said, let's forget about God and Torah. Let's believe in this idol. Although the whole world believes in these idols. Let's take the, this idol is now the deity, and he doesn't say anything about what, who I'm allowed to sleep with, what I'm allowed to do. And now I can do whatever I want. I'm sorry, what? When the basis of the Jews committing idolatry. I'm not talking about other people, but the Jews. The, the, the Talmud song is specifically about Jews. As to, as, to, as to why Gentiles do idolatry, that might be a different thing. It might be linked to what Abraham 
uh, what Maimonides described with Abraham or with Abraham's predecessors, the mistake that was made, you know, it began the, in a theological manner and spiraled out of control. But the question is about the Jews. Jews have faith in their DNA. The Talmud says, so how are they behaving otherwise? How are they doing idolatry? And the Talmud answers is that, yes, it wasn't... They, 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 they did the math, and they did the logical, you know, and they contrasted the legitimacy of faith in God versus the legitimacy of belief in an idol. And they actually weighed all the possibilities, and they did all the algorithms and all the math, and they said, oh, it's more likely that this idol has power than the invisible God. That's not the approach. It's, the approach was that I really want X. Believing in God and Torah, this allows me to have X. I need alternatives. And you'll tell us, okay, well, a lot of people in the world believe in this thing. Okay, well, this is good enough. You know, let's believe in this, and now I can do whatever I want. Rabbi, I think, you know, if you're looking at more modern times, I was wondering also about being, taking the, the skewed view of science. I think a lot we'll of get to science. Are, we're okay. going to have to we're yeah, talk about science. Thing. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's the next thing we're going to talk okay. about. We're going right. to bring this down to modern times. That's where it's going to get okay. a little fun, I hope. <laughs> so let's see a question, guys. <laughs> so let's say we have these people in, in ancient... Uh, in ancient Jewish life, uh, and they are bowing down to idols and worshiping idols and giving libations for idols and sacrificing stuff for idols. And they're Jews. So we walk over to them and say, hey, excuse me, sir, do you really believe in this idol? Does it, you know, do you really believe it or not? What would they say? Well, they so, would say, No, but if you ask them genuinely, do you believe in it? So you say yes, and, and Wendy says no, right? Because because they they're really motivated with something other than theology, right? So what 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 time frame are you asking when you ask? I'm talking about when the Jews were doing idolatry. So I'm talking I'm talking about way before the Jewish experience. Are you talking about? No, I'm I'm talking about the 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 the, the, uh, the eight to nine hundred years from Moses okay. till the men of the Great Assembly. That's where we have all the stories in the Bible where the Jews were doing idolatry. Some of the, some Jews were doing, not all of them, some Jews. Uh, when the Jews were doing, now the, no, no Jews do idolatry now. Maybe different forms of it, we'll get to in a second. Yeah. But if you ask the question of a Jew in, in antiquity who is worshipping an idol, and the Talmud gives a bunch of stories about people that were worshipping idols. Really, they, genuinely. Like they, they, they worship their idols. Really, like it's hard to imagine Jews would do that. But if you were to ask them, why are you doing that? They would say, because it's true. So they respond. They would. They would. Okay. What the Talmud is doing here, the Talmud is plumbing to the deep depths of someone's consciousness and saying, what is really motivating them? Of course, externally, people will say, I believe in X because I think X is true. But at the core, says the Talmud, it was really all about per- per- permissiveness. That's what it really was about. The permissiveness drove them to come to theological conclusions. But the point is like this. These people were unaware of their own biases. They had no idea. If you were to ask them, what do you really believe? They would say, I really believe that this deity is powerful. I really believe it. And they would defend it. They they, they actually (laughs) worshipped it. But the point is, the Talmud is saying what really motivated them was permissiveness. That's what really motivated them. And how did that manifest? It manifested in the form of idolatry. And we have a principle elsewhere in the Torah. The Torah already establishes this idea that when someone has a bias, when someone is bent on a certain outcome in a pursuit, they might not even be aware of their own biases. And that outcome is what they'll achieve. Think, think of this question. We have a, a, a criminal case in court. So there's a defense attorney and there's a prosecuting attorney. Both of them create uh, a, an argument to their own side. That's only possible if pursuit of truth is not what's motivating them. Right? So we designed a judicial system where we are pitting the brightest minds against each other and pursuit of truth is on no one's agenda. 
And that's insane. That's what the Torah, you know, Torah doesn't have this idea of, you know, of, of, of the judges or the bright minds trying to lobby one way or the other. Because as a defense attorney, your job is to find a defense argument for your client. What if the guy's guilty? So what? It doesn't matter. But it really ought to matter, no? The guy's guilty. They should be persecuted. You know, they, you know, they, should, you know, they should be prosecuted and punished for what they did. The answer is, is that this is an example of how someone can argue vociferously for something that is not true. And because pursuit of truth is not really what's motivating them. What's the matter with that, Howard? Well, yeah, but, but but it's it's really motivating people to do something, which to us would be how could how could we encourage that? Well, that's the system that we have. <coughs> but this is an example of people arguing in favor of something that maybe isn't true at all, and they might not even be aware of their own biases. So we have the story of Eliezer. Eliezer, quickly. The story of Eliezer in Genesis, he is sent to go find a spouse for Isaac. Now, remember, Eliezer has a daughter. <coughs> Eliezer has a daughter, and he wants his daughter to marry Isaac. Eliezer, after all, is Abraham's prime disciple. Who would be a better choice for a father-in-law for Isaac than someone who's Abraham's right-hand man? And Eliezer asks Abraham, okay, you're sending me east to find a spouse for, for Isaac. Well, what if she doesn't want to come back? Ulai, perhaps she doesn't want to come back. What do I do then? Which is a bizarre question. Abraham is sending you to a mission. Go do the mission. Why is he asking the question? Right? Why? Wait, wait, wait. So Abraham tells him, oh, don't worry. If, you're, if, you're, um, if she, says she doesn't want to come back, you're exonerated from your pledge. Fine. He goes east, and he meets Rebecca, and he says, give me some water, and she gives him water, not for him, not only for him, but for his camels. She meets, he meets the parents, and the brother, and they have the whole back and forth. And he retells the whole story. Starts with Abraham. Abraham commanded me to go find a wife for Isaac. And I asked the question, Uli, perhaps the woman, the girl, won't want to come back with me. If you look at the spellings of those two words, Uli, number one, when, he's, when, when he was dealing with Abraham, and number two, when he repeats it to the family of Rebecca, it's spelled differently. Ula means perhaps. But in one, the first instance spelled with a vav, ulai with a vav, and the second instance spelled ulai with adavav, which can also be pronounced elai, which means to me. So Rashi there tells us, Rashi tells us that the reason why it's spelled without a vav, when it's spelled that it could be pronounced elai, even though it also could be pronounced ulai, is to tell you that here Eliezer recognized that when he was asking Abraham, what do I do if the woman doesn't want to come back with me? What he really was asking was asking was Eli to me. If the girl doesn't come back, Isaac's mine. I'll have him marry my daughter. At the time where Eliezer asked the question, what do I do if the girl doesn't want to come back? If you were to stop him and say, why are you asking that question? What would he say? Well, it's a good question. What, what if the girl doesn't come back? Is he legitimate? Yeah, well, whatever. I'm saying that's a good question to ask, but right? He had an ulterior motive, of course. Later on, when he recounts the story, he realizes, ah, the reason why I was asking that was really because I wanted, in my heart of hearts, that Isaac should marry my own daughter. Well, this is when he's saying it. That's the point. You're right. When he's saying it, right? When he says it the first time, he, he's, that's what he's thinking, Ulai. Later on, when he's repeating it, he's thinking back about what happened. It clicks. What I was really saying was Eli. So this means like this. Even someone like Eliezer. Remember, Eliezer is a student of Abraham. He's someone, obviously, he's very well-grounded intellectually. He's motivated by intellectual. Even him, he's not aware of his own biases until afterwards. Unless you have what's called a cheshbona nefesh, unless you have a recollection of your behavior, you relive what you did, only then can you unmask the true motivation of How your... How do you relate that back to your idolatry? Okay, my point is like this. The people that were doing idolatry in yesteryear had no idea that the real reason why they were supporting these idols was because they wanted 
the illicit sex. They had no idea. To them, they were really arguing. Oh, well, you know, this, this seems logical. They were really making that argument. So there was a bias there? And they had an ulterior That's motive. That's right. They were motivated by the permissiveness, permissibility of what the Torah prohibited, and therefore they found an excuse. Let's translate this to modern times. People today don't genuflect to idols. They don't. Does that mean that there's no more excuses? Does that mean that people are not biased today? Well, some people today are more biased. So what are today's excuses? What would an excuse that a Jew today would say? Maybe I'm not obligated. What would the excuse be today? Well, yeah, science, science about materialism, love of materialism. But that's not an excuse. Money. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, reason. it's a reason. So I, I, I want to, I want to piggyback. Well, you don't believe in God. Why? But what? But you can't just say you don't believe. You have to give an alternative to say, well, the, evolution explains it all, right? The, the Torah doesn't. Like evolution Torah plus Big Bang. Right. I haven't seen it with my own eyes, or I haven't been touched, or done sex with personally. Or the rabbis invented the oral Torah. You've ever heard the term rabbinic Judaism? What does the term rabbinic Judaism mean? Rabbis. Who invented rabbis, the yeah. rabbis invented that I form was just of Judaism? Say maybe all another reason is uh, would be the Torah doesn't apply to me today. It's a book from you know antiquity and it doesn't apply to me. It's not relevant today. Not relevant. Torah not relevant. Better word, right. yeah. Or not the Torah is not true. Documentary not hypothesis, true. right? Yeah. It wasn't even written. Be right. But these <laughs> are these really in pursuit of truth or not? Are they really in pursuit of truth or are they a form of bias? Are they an excuse? Now, this is a hard question to answer. This, is, this ought to be unsettling. Because everything that we do, we rationalize. Everything, that, every stance, every behavior that we take, we want to feel comfortable with what we're doing. So we have to find a way to say, I'm good enough. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing enough. Anyone who's more religious than me, well, they're fanatics. They're doing more than they need. Anyone who spends their whole life studying Torah, that's outrageous. You know, that's a bit too much. But maybe they're right. Maybe we're just giving that excuse because we don't, we don't we want to watch football. That's what we want to do, and that's just an excuse. And I'm I'm, not, I'm and, and and I'm saying th- there's an entire spectrum of that. You say people say, well, I want to drive in Shabbos. That's what they really want to do. They want they don't want to be cooped up in their house. So you well, uh, driving driving is not prohibited on Shabbos. That's what they make the argument. Either they'll say it's not prohibited on Shabbos, or well, doesn't it say the Torah that driving is Shabbos is prohibited? What's really motivating? Is it really, really a pursuit of truth? Do they, really, do they even really study it? Do they even know what it's based upon? Or is it just an excuse? Or people say, ah, oh, you know, I, I, I'm saying, you could go up and down the spectrum, right? People don't want to intermarry. Well, you'll say, well, the synagogue today does intermarriages. It's, you know, the rabbi does it. Certain rabbis. They do worse things, yeah. Right? Does that, sh- is, is, is that really pursuit of truth? Well, what does the Torah actually say about intermarriage? What does it say? You know, let, let, what's the Torah's true perspective? Now, that's obviously uncomfortable for a lot of people to hear, right? But the question, and it's very uncomfortable to hear that we are motivated by biases, but it's true. It's true for every single one of us in this room. Every single person on the planet is subject to this. And this is the reason why Jews don't have faith. I would argue this is the reason why Gentiles don't have faith, you know, even though there the the by the the it's it's on a lower level. Right? We today, even though we don't have idolatry, we have other excuses. We have other biases. We we have other ways to other hooks to hang our biases on. Today no one believes in idolatry. Does that mean that everyone's forced to accept God? No. We'll come up with other creative solutions. Well, we also have a have people that are their main purpose is to um, prove the non-existence of God. That are out there preaching that. Oh yeah. What's the yeah. famous, famous the sign? Um, the guy in the Yeah. What is his no, name? No, the guy that's in the film. Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Hawking. Yeah. That's I mean, that, that's, what he, that's his whole claim to fame. Is, I agree. Is that. And, and yes. but, but what does that but what does that say? When you have someone who's a brilliant scientist and no one's going to argue that he's not, 
Well, he says he believes in evolution. He believes in Big Bang, right? Those are excuses. or well, not excuses, but those are alternatives to God, right? right. Once you couple Big Bang, random, with, with random evolution, you, voila, you, you kind of avoided what you were forced to accept otherwise. Now, I'm saying we're not judging the merits of their argument just yet. But either way, this, were it to be untrue, random evolution and, and Big Bang, right? This... Uh, it still provides enough cover, so to speak, for someone to fulfill their biases. And yeah. look at that. You have a brilliant scientist who believes in it. Mm-hmm. He's not your only. Well, there's yeah, a lot of, there's lot of brilliant scientists yeah. that yeah. believe in it. That's what I'm saying. So Science what does that mean? Well, the question, but the question is not just who will agree with that people will agree with them. People agree with a lot of retarded things, right? No, not to say that that's retarded. I'm saying, but right. okay, <laughs> not necessarily. Uh, I'm saying I think I think it's absolutely insane to think that, and we'll get to discussion of evolution because that's a discussion that's relevant to our uh, to what we discussed till now. But I I, I think to, to to someone to actually believe that. Every all life on this earth came from a single ame- amoeba. I think that's crazier than bowing down to a little figurine and saying this created the world. I think it's crazier. Why? From a single amoeba. That's right. And I'm going to go through that a little bit today. I think it, I'm, I'll stick by my words. I think that's retarded. <laughs> now, but what if you? What do you do with a lot of brilliant people that believe that? Well, that provides sufficient comfort. And by the way, I want to make the argument that the Almighty wants it like this. That's where free will comes into play. The free will is not whether or not it's true or not if we were pursuing truth. The free will is what tools are we going to employ in our journey? If we, just, if we employ just our rational, reasonable intelligence, we'll arrive at the truth. If pursuit of truth is what's motivating us, we'll get there. If we are motivated by a pursuit of pleasures that are not allowed by the Torah, we'll get there as well. How we'll get there? We'll find a way. We'll be forced to find a way. And even if that means creating models that are so outrageous to say that without any guidance, one amoeba turned into 8.7 million species, that is insane. It's insane. But we'll get there if we need to get there. If I'm compelled to get there, I'm the defense attorney for pleasure, right? I'm, mot- I'm paid for. Who's paying my bills? Right? What's motivating? What, do I ha- what end do I have to reach? Uh, if, it's, if it's one that, 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 that obviously you forgot, I'll get there. No matter what. So back in yesteryear, it was, uh, it was idols. Today, it'll be some other model that obviously you forgot. Rabbi, there's another so, little fact. Go ahead. Can I just mention this little fact? Just I thought about this because we had a discussion in our Sunday class about this too. Um, the fact that people don't believe in life after death, and therefore a lot of people live for today, and they don't think about. And it kind of piggybacks, it, you know, onto what you're talking about, you know, immorality and all the rest of it. Because you know, hey, I'm going to do what's good for me today. Yeah, what's, because I, don't to, I, don't, I have no account. That's and that's very logical. Let's assume all you want, you were motivated by pursuit of carnal pleasure, then, and, uh, you know, the consequences would obviously, consequences for those activities would be a hindrance. And right. one way to get away of the hindrance is to say, well, there is no, there is no consequences. There's no accountability. There is no yes. consequences. Right. And, but, the, but that's not necessarily logical, mm-hmm. right? Logically, we have to ask the question, is there more reason to believe that there is life after death or not? Okay, let's go. But um, in, in, this mo- in this module of our discussion, we just finished talking about God. Okay, so what phantom reality is today's version of idolatry in the capacity of allowing someone to hang their hat on a certain excuse to allow them to, to, to pursue their pleasure? So I think we talked about, for example, rabbis made up the oral Torah. Right? That's a very rabbinic Judaism. That's very common to hear today. And it's, it's made up the whole Torah. Or, or, the, or the whole written Torah. That's right. Though there's a documentary about this. There's four authors. It was based upon some stories and history. And it was put together by some redactor. And a lot of people 
claim that. And that's going to be, by the way, we're going to have a discussion about this in our next module that we do when we talk about Torah. Because a lot of people say that, and I want to make the argument that it's illogical. It's not based upon reason. Right? And we're going to have a third module talking about reward and punishment. And the people that say they don't believe in reward and punishment, that's another excuse. Because all these excuses enable someone to do what they want, which may be pursuit of pleasure. And if this is a hindrance, they'll have to find a way. Life will find a way to achieve what it wants to achieve. The defense attorney will find some sort of argument to make the guy uh, guilty. He knows he's not. He he, to make the guy innocent. He he knows he's guilty. Everyone knows he's guilty. Pursuit of truth doesn't matter. When I want something, that trumps my pursuit of truth. Unless what I want is truth, then I'll get there. So let's so let's discuss a little bit about um, one more question before we get into the actual uh, issues. Just some just some points. Um, what do you do with someone like that? What do you do with someone that's biased? How do you how do you engage how do you engage in the discussion with them? Well, you try and find something to, that you did have a problem with. Okay, but when you discuss the issues, and the issues don't really matter, because no matter how much logic you present, if if they are avoiding the logic, you're not on the same wavelength. So how do you, what do you do? I found something very interesting. I mean, you can argue someone until you're blue in the face. You can really argue and, and argue and argue and argue. But if you guys are working with different premises, mm-hmm. you'll never agree. The defense attorney, the prosecuting attorney, will never agree. Why don't they have that? You know, say, I think you're right. How come that never happens? It never happens. Like, yeah. you know what? You're right. I resign from the case. Why don't they do that? Because that is their presupposition. The presupposition is the guy is innocent, and let's find a way to get there. Let's find a way to get to that destination. Once that's assumed, you'll find a way to get there. And then everything else the other guy says is insane, because I already assumed the opposite. Pursuit of truth is not being discussed. If you're going to have an argument with someone, and they are determined that the result be X, Nothing you could possibly say will convince them otherwise. Do you walk away under that scenario? So what do you do? Do you argue yeah, till you believe the face? You walk what away? do you do? Do you walk away? Right? If someone is not willing to listen to the truth. So I have, I have two approaches, I think. I think the first approach is we have a Mishnah in the book of the chapter of the fathers. Uh, where we're instructed, Da mashetashiv la'apikores. No how to respond to an apicorus. Apicorus is a heathen, a heretic. Now, what does that mean? That seems to say that you engage in debate. You've got to know how to respond. That's not what it says. If you listen carefully, it says, know what to respond to the apicorus. Da mashetashiv apicorus. It doesn't say respond to the apicorus. No. It says you have to know what the response would be. But, but you don't respond because it's, it's, it's futile. Yeah. If someone is an apicorus, if they are determined to not listen to what you're saying, don't say it. Know what to say, but don't say it. That's what's being demanded of us. That's the, I think, the first response. And the question is, what if someone is an apicorus? Right? What if someone already is the defense attorney, so to speak, for their permissive way of life? What do you do then? How do you navigate that? So I think there's another, another approach, which I think... This is more of experimental, but I think that there is this idea of having a debate, of trying to disassociate the the debate with its conclusion or with what with its implications. If I told you, God forbid, right, we're gonna have an argument, but the stakes are if you're wrong, you know, you're gonna have to lose your uh, one of your children. There's no way that they'll ever agree. Right? They'll never if I convince you that you're wrong on any issue, right? I convince you you're wrong, you're gonna lose one of your kids. Well You'll find a way to argue, right? Yeah, it's because the stakes are too high. The The stakes are too high, right? So what's the problem? The problem is that someone I'm 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 a pleasure seeker. That's what I want. If the implications of the argument are that my pleasure goes away. I'm not going to agree. It's, it's too valuable for me. As humans, we're pleasure seekers. That's what we are. If, if someone, if someone is being told that if you lose this argument, you're 
going to lose the pleasure. It's essentially what we're being told is that you're being locked out of life, so to speak, because life is a pursuit of pleasure. So I think the problem, the problem that someone has with actually engaging in this debate honestly is that in their heads, the implication of the debate is that, okay, if God is in Torah is true, my life is miserable. I can't drive on Shabbos. I can't eat whatever else I want. It's, 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 I lose out all the pleasures. But if they are open to the idea of spiritual pleasures, which the Torah tells us, right? We have lots of sources to this, that, that even this our approach is that we're pursuing pleasure. That's also our approach. It's just we have higher levels of pleasure. The Torah is guiding us to be higher levels of pleasure. A kid, right? What does a kid want? Candy. What do they want more? More candy. That's all they want. <laughs> Adults, we also want candy. Yeah. It's just that our candy is a little more sophisticated. We want money. We want prestige. Right? Well, we material want things. material things. Mm-hmm. Means, but, but essentially, we're the same organism. We're working the same, with the same rules. It's just that our pleasure concepts have been upgraded. Judaism and Torah is also about getting those candy bars. It's just they're not candy bars, and they're not fancy cars or prestige. It's a higher level of pleasure. It's a more delicate level of pleasure. You talk about love. Is love a pleasure? Yes. Define it. What, what, do, you, what do you feel? Well, it's very hard to define because it's not material. It's not like you feel good because your taste buds, right? It's much more nuanced and subtle than that. That's a higher level of pleasure. The Torah talks about the highest levels of pleasure. Higher than love, even. Okay, wow. If that's, the, if that's the implication of the conclusion that God is true, Torah is true, maybe people will be more willing to hear. And then what's experimental? So those are the, those are the two options. Either you can't respond because you have to know what to respond, but if someone's unwilling to listen, then you can't talk. If someone, what if someone wants to be willing to listen? They have to realize that when they opt in to God and Torah, if that's the reasonable result of their conclusion, they're actually going to be presented with higher levels of pleasure that they couldn't have achieved otherwise. The Torah essentially is a manual book for pleasure. But wait a minute, Rabbi, all the things that you can't do is, is, is included in the Torah. Well, do you think that a chocolate bar is pleasurable? Yeah. But can you have 15 of them? Oh, diminishing returns. Right? Why not? It's more and more and more pleasure. Yes. But when you really want to have the higher levels of pleasure, you want to withhold the lower levels of pleasure because they're going to become into conflict. So Torah tells us all the people we can't sleep with and all the foods we cannot eat, right? That is an exercise in maturity, in upgrading our standards of pleasure. And the third thing, which is the experimental thing, which is we have to find a way to have a conversation based upon logic without consequences of implications. So it means... I want to think perhaps, this is experimental, I said, I want to think perhaps, can we have a real debate? It might, it might not be possible. Is there some way to circumvent the biases? Is there some way to have a debate based on pure reason? It means not taking any conclusions and not having any implications of the conclusion. I don't know if it's possible. Maybe. I mean, I have to think about this. If, is, it, is it possible? You guys tell me if you think. David's nodding his head, no. It might not be possible. But if there would be a way to have a discussion, but the implications of the discussion never come into the dialogue of the, dis- uh, of, of the, of the debate, then maybe there's room to talk. I don't know if that's possible. Maybe yes. Maybe no. Well, that's probably why we have a jury. Yeah, because, but that, that assumes because you can't have a negative and a positive side and have no conclusion. That's right. But the question is the the who are the brightest minds in the room? Right. Our problem with our jury system is the people that are smart don't end up right. on juries. I agree with you. Awesome. That's unfortunate. We're going to have the people that are most <laughs> or, or most well, easily yeah. swayed or most average. That's a nice but, way to say it, Lindy. Yeah, figure out a, a system that's better. Right? So what the Torah system is that you have three unbiased judges. Right. We read about You guys read that a few weeks ago. Right. Right? Last week you read about it. Right? How the most important thing to have in a but judge is not being biased. But they're still a jury kind. They're judges. They're judges. But that's the one thing that disqualifies them. Why? Because then you can't talk. Reason doesn't matter. 
Truth doesn't matter if you're biased. Right. Truth and bias are opposites. The problem is finding the unbiased judges. That's it. That, Look that, at the Supreme Court. You got four people who are always going to vote. <laughs> one way, four people are always going to vote. Yeah. And you get the swing vote. And then Anthony Kennedy decides what happens yeah, in America. So I, I want to talk about evolution here. Okay, so evolution is a alternative to God and Torah. Why? We see a very sophisticated world. And logically, we would assume just on just our response with that typically would be, okay, when you see something sophisticated, you assume that there's some sort of intelligent design behind that. Everyone agrees to that principle. That would, that would be what you would assume. What's evolution? Evolution is an engine that enables that creator, that in design to be random. Now, is it possible that evolution is true and God is true? Absolutely. So I want to make this abundantly clear. In society today, when you talk about creationists or evolutionists, they seem to uh, imply that they are not, they're mutually exclusive. When in reality, and I'll explain this in two words and it makes a lot of sense, God, that is a cause Evolution is not a cause. Evolution is a process. Evolution describes the process of the development of the origin of species and its development to where we are today. That's what evolution is. It's a process. What's God? That's a cause. The cause could use the process. And they are not at all in conflict. Why are we even having this discussion? The problem with evolution is that people assume they are in conflict. And the benefit of evolution for people that don't want the implications of God is that evolution also could provide a cause, even though it really can't. But they assume it can because people say, hey, there's so much proof of evolution. Yeah, there's proof of evolution in the process. There's zero proof of evolution in the cause. And you know what? Evolution in the cause is so outrageous and so improbable that any healthy logic rejects it. Yeah, I mean, the people who dismiss intelligent design say evolution is totally random and there, there is no creator. But why? Why well, does evolution disprove saying. God? It doesn't make any sense. How does the process, the process negate the cause? It doesn't. You know, If I write something on a piece of paper, um, the cause... The process, the pen and the ink, the paper. So say, oh, I, I see pen, pen, ink, and paper. It must be that it's happened on its own. No, I employed a process to achieve the result. Who's to say that God didn't employ evolution to create the world, create organisms? Who's to say that? We have no proof otherwise. In fact, the Torah gives us 31 verses to describe Genesis. Do you think that's an exhaustive detail, an exhaustive accounting of everything that happened? Of course not. So... Who's to say that he didn't employ evolution? In fact, if you actually look at the progression of species, it does start off, what's the most sophisticated species out there? Well, that's the human. Well, we're the last one to be created. It does seem to model the more, less sophisticated to more sophisticated organisms. Maybe, indeed, they're both true. Why is that not an option? Why do people seem to pit creationism against evolution? Do you know why? Because evolution is an excuse to fulfill their bias. To not believe in God. Exactly. Because yeah. that option, you don't help. Evolution doesn't help us, if us, so to speak. But evolution doesn't help people if what they really want is permissiveness. It's not going to help them if evolution is merely a process. If it's merely a process, but God is the one pulling the strings, you have the same problem. God demands certain modes of behavior. If the God of the Torah employed evolution, you don't have an excuse anymore to say, well, maybe God doesn't exist. So it must be that evolution is antithetical to God. And they are in opposition, even though it doesn't make any sense, because evolution is the process, God's the cause. But if we say that and we say, oh, there's proof for evolution, even though there's no proof for evolution in the cause, because evolution in the cause doesn't exist. And evolution in the cause is entirely logical. We'll go to that in a second. But once you're able to say that and you're able to muddle it a little bit, 
you have a perfect formula and a perfect way to get out of jail free card, right? Get out of responsibility free card. Get out of morality free card. Get out of rules and restrictions free card. Permissiveness abound. So let's talk a little bit about it. So we have this idea um, wherein, like we said, step one, we all start off with the idea that creation to such a sophisticated level, and even to not a sophisticated level, doesn't happen on its own. This phone, this tablet, this bottle of water, the bound book, those things have to have some force behind it. And unless we thought otherwise, that force would be God. Because we see sophistication that we can't imagine how someone would do that. I saw recently a picture, this might be a little gory, I saw a picture of a the surface of a living brain. I don't know if you guys want to look at it. I have it over here. Want to look at it? You sure? Ayah. That's a surface of a living brain. I saw this picture. I'm like, wow. And I'm looking at the details. And all these tiny little little pipes carrying blood. And you count up the pipes carrying blood. And you put them end to end. You have a more sophisticated network than all the world's roads put together in one person. And you know what happens in the road when there is an accident? How many times does that happen a day? Lots and lots and lots and lots, right? What happens in your body if there's an, if there's an accident, if there's a buildup in your arteries and your pipes and your canals? You're dead. You're dead. So we have a system that's so complex, yet operates at such peak efficiency where there's never an accident in years and years and years and years. Imagine if I created a road system in the United States and all over the world where there's no accidents, there's no traffic. That would be unbelievable. But that happens within our bodies every single second, every day, at billions of people. Designed in a way that we can't possibly fathom. How would we do it if we tried to do it, much less how would we do it if it just happened on its own? And yet people seem to be okay with the idea of evolution, providing an answer to the source, not the process, but the source, the cause of all of the organisms, the species we have today. It's remarkable. To me, if we were really using logic, if logic was a motivating factor whatsoever, the debate's over. It's impossible. It's, and, and, and yet you see so many people that are believing that in opposition to God. The only way that can happen is because they already have the conclusion set. And once they're determined to get there, they'll find a way. Life will find a way. They are Humans are creative enough to do that. And the Almighty allows us to do that because the Almighty wants us to have that free will. There's so many examples of this, of this, of this idea. I don't want to get too bogged down, but you know, the famous line of these uh, uh, noble laureates, uh, a tornado sweeping through a junkyard. You ever heard that one? The likelihood of an amoeba becoming a human eye, it's the same likelihood of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. Uh, uh, How about us coming from a sponge? (laughs) A sponge? Yeah. Uh, there's an analogy that people do. They say that you know, if you have enough monkeys sitting in enough keyboards, they'll do the entire works of Shakespeare. But they did an experiment with that, and they found out that what? somebody did an experiment. Let's assume you they have a million monkeys. If you sit the monkeys out, they, they actually create very few words, let alone books. And then after a while, the keyboards get so clu- cluttered with the monkey species that nothing happens anymore. <laughs> well, actually... Someone did that math. What are the odds of uh, of creating one of Shakespeare's sonnets with uh, with monkeys, right? So there's there's one of them. Shall I compare you to a summer day? Summer's day. There's 488 letters. Ran- what are the odds? What are the chances of randomly typing 488 letters to produce one sonnet? Right. It's a number of a one followed by 690 yeah. zeros. 
So if you were to do one of those a second, it will take you the amount of... Well, there's, there's no way to describe. Right? Since 15 billion years ago, we all, the amount of seconds we have is only a one followed by 18 zeros. So an unimaginable, an unimaginably longer time than the time frame we have right, to create just four... 188 words. And that we can do, by the way. Something that we can... This is a simple algorithm. Let's, let's just work the simple mathematics. What's it easier to do? To create something with design by chance or by calculated, you know, uh, attempting to try to do so? What's easier? Of course. If you try to do something, it's easier to do it than by chance. Right? So we try to do something and we do things like phones, right? That we we can do. It's very sophisticated. Right? What what can we cha- accomplish by chance? What's the maximum we could possibly accomplish by chance? Almost nothing. Like we said, you want to have those people, those those monkeys type it's impossible for monkeys to type by chance to read to, to say a poem. Even a sentence, listen to this guys. A sentence, a random sentence with only eighteen letters sixteen letters. It would take 2 million billion years. So we have 15 billion years. Not 15 billion. 2 million billion years for that to happen randomly. Random things don't happen. We don't happen anywhere. And yet you want to say that all of all, all this complexity that we can't do if we tried to do it all happened randomly. I, I have no idea where it even... I, I can't talk to people. How do, you have a, how do you have an argument with someone who's not willing to accept any logic? You can't because you're not arguing on the same with the same playing field. You're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not talking the same language. They're determined to reach a certain end, and they'll get there no matter how irrational and illogical it may be. And more. Evolution doesn't tell a complete story. Evolution starts with point B. What does evolution start with? We have an amoeba. Let's create humans. Let's create elephants. <coughs> Let's create animals. How do you make an amoeba out of nothing? Remember, once you have God, you have all the answers. Simple, right? God is just outside of the realm of this world. He's not limited by any restrictions. could create whatever he wants. But let's assume that we're not dealing with God. So we have an inanimate matter. How do we make it? Well, first of all, how do you even have an inanimate matter? It's a difficult question. Let's assume you get that, right? You have inanimate matter. How are you making ma- animate matter? How are you doing it? So maybe, but it, it seems uh, from, um, here we go. Um, this is the, what's called the Hoyle and then Wick Ramashinge. Uh, um, they did the calculation. A simple cell. A simple cell, just a simple cell, One right? Cell. One cell, that's right. Uh, a bacterium, which is the simplest of cells, it's got 2,000 enzymes. What are the odds? The odds are 1 in 10 to the 40,000th. But these are not even numbers that we can measure. We take every single particle on planet Earth and put a zero in it. We can't get to that number. We can't. But they did the calculation. That's even a single cell. We can't, we, we, randomly, we can't get to one cell, much less taking that one cell and turning it into elephants and, and, and mice and lions and eels and human eyeballs. It's, it's, it's well, not logical. Okay, so and, you, and do, and you do the research and, and give me the numbers. It's still, whatever number you get... Okay, but you, whatever, whatever number you get, it, it's, it, it's out of the realm of possibility. And that's widely established. Everyone accepts that. That's out of the realm of possibility. So then what do they do is say, okay, well, there's multiple billions, billions of universes, and we have to be the right one and the right Earth that it all came perfectly. Okay, so you know you can't talk to someone, right? We're not, we're not negotiating with logic because that's you know that's that's an excuse. That's not a, that's not logic. Well, just like we accept God as being in being, there are some scientists that accept what we're talking about as being. So that's uh, my that's point exactly. My point is is that we're not working with logic. We're talking. We're arguing against people that are committed to faith, as even if it may be illogical. And that's my whole point. My point is, is that let's assume we're pursuing truth. Where would we end up? I'll give you another example here. How much time do we have? Just according to science. I'm just working with the timeline that science is giving us. So we'll 
finish with this, guys. Okay, we'll, we'll finish with this. How much time do we have from when the first amoeba appears to now? Anyone knows? A lot. Go ahead. Give a guess. Four billion? No, 15 billion is the world. We, there's, no, there's, no, there's no life on planet Earth quite yet. It's about, about 3.5 billion. So it sounds like a lot of years, but it really isn't when you calculate how many species are there. How many different, distinct species are there on planet? It's an enormous amount. Uh, it's about 8 million species. Okay. And they're finding more species every day. Every day they find a new species somewhere else. Okay. And, and that's, that's the next point. And... 99% of all species that have ever existed are already extinct. So if you do the math, simple math, we're talking about, about almost 100 million different species have to all evolve on their own without any guidance in 3.5 billion years. You do the math, we're talking about every 35 years a new species. You're like, oh, 35 years, we could do that, right? But what does that demand? But that also assumes that the rate of evolution is constant, the, irregardless of the pool of biological, uh, prim, not primordial, but biological soup you have to play with. Obviously, the more species there are, there are, the more varied species there are, the more evolution can happen. That's evolution ought to be happening now at a faster rate than it happened two or three or five billion years ago with one amoeba. One amoeba is plus two amoeba, maybe it does randomly after a couple of hundreds or thousands of years. You don't have enough time. You have to have an entire organism every 40 years, and you have to have evolution happening now faster than ever. And what happens? We're losing more than we're getting. So extinction happens faster than evolution. It's not possible. Go ahead. You begin, we have different types of evolutions happen. We go from a meat to a dinosaur, back to here, and then to an ape, to a man. It's impossible. My point is like this, guys. And that's what they my point is, is that I'm not trying to counteract evolution here. It's not my point. I'm okay if someone doesn't believe in evolution. I'm fine. You know what? If you were to ask me, how did the mind create the world, create all the species? The correct answer is, I don't know, because we never told anywhere. And we do have some indications, like the Ramban tells us, that everything was created in day one, yeah. in theory. Yeah. But it was developed over the... That sounds like evolution. That everything is there at the core, but it develops over time. I'm fine with that, as long as you have God in control. And therefore, the implications of that are the same as if God created it. Straight. We're okay with that. For some people, that's not enough. And the question is why? They have zero evidence to say that evolution, the cause, exists. Zero evidence. There's no proof of it whatsoever. Not only that, it's highly unlikely and highly irrational to say that. You're going against mathematics. Why do they say that? Why can they be happy to say God created with evolution? Why? What's wrong with that? Everyone wins. You know why they don't? Why they don't? Because what do you do then? How do you fulfill your bias? How do you achieve your stated goal? You can't. That's that, guys. Why don't people believe? The answer, the real answer is because they don't want to believe. It's not because they pursued truth and they ended up at that goal. Because belief demands that the behavior be parallel, be in line with what you believe. And if, if what's logical is a conclusion that you don't like, you'll find a way to circumvent that conclusion. Despite the fact that it may be entirely logical. That's that. So it is unsettling because for each one of us, we have to say, oh, goodness, we have biases. No one likes to question their own biases. No one likes to do that. It's not fun. It's not fun for anyone here, anyone in the world, really. It's very unsettling. Uh, but it's true, and we know it exists, and therefore we have to find some way that when we make these important decisions in our lives of what we actually, how we dedicate our lives, we want to make sure that they're based on logic and based on what's more likely to be true, based on truth. And if we can find some way to get that pursuit of truth, we're off and running. But we should know it's an uphill battle with lots of headwinds. It's not easy. It's not easy confronting what really is motivating us. It's not easy.
if we can find some way to pursue truth, everything else will already shake its way out. Everything else. But to get there, that's an uphill battle. Let's do it, guys.